0: On Sunday. And Sitting pretty on a Monday.
1: And you know on and, with and, and, and NFL week 10 line movement and suma. A big factor behind a lot of line movement we've seen so far this season has been the surprisingly low scoring environment across the league. You noted in your Monday write-up on the hammer. Games averaging 43.6 points this season if we look at the mean, and just 42 points per game if we look at the median. You also noted that that hasn't gotten significantly better in recent weeks as the season has progressed. And I wanted to run something by you that I came across courtesy of Ben Brown over at PFF. He and I do a weekly hit on v after each Monday night football game. And he's come across a couple of culprits behind the scoring decline related to quarterbacks under pressure. Wanted to see first off if you've come across any info along those lines and what you think about how pressure on quarterbacks has affected scoring and the NFL so far this season.
2: That's pretty interesting because I think there are a few things that work together here. Um, I, I would not call it the year of the defense because offense is still the dominating factor overall, but defenses are in some kind of form pitching back a little bit this year in playing better and more disciplined to high coverage on the back end basically taking away all the big plays like for years we had every dc copying the seattle cover three defense and at some point every offensive coordinator had a lot of plays and cover three betas single high betas against that kind of defense so at some point defense uh, defenses were switching back and were saying okay we are going to play more cover two, cover four, cover two man, cover six, switching up some things on the back end. And defenses are also better this season at messing around with protections at the line of scrimmage. The Titans are a very good example for this. Lots of stuns, simulated pressure. We saw it with the Ravens on Monday night football against the Saints, simulated pressure, stuns. We finding different ways to disrupt opposing uh, protection and offensive line plays also down the season when you look at the average um, PFF pass blocking weight, for for example. So usually in the past, when quarterbacks were under pressure, there was, is my best assumption, still more, or there were more things developing down the field against those um, static, let's say single high defenses, and they could wait a little bit more for someone to get open, But now that the whole picture for quarterbacks is a lot more clouded, in a sense, it makes it harder for them to take shots. And that might inevitably, I fully trust Ben Brown on that, uh, lead to worse performance under pressure. That, That is my best assumption, but it also makes logical sense when you put everything together.
1: I think the last part of that answer was kind of the key to what I've been trying to get at here, because the the two culprits that Ben had mentioned were worst quarterback performance this year when pressured than in prior years and more of those pressures converting to sacks. And I've been thinking that performance when quarterbacks are pressured and quarterback sacks, those are very impactful metrics, but also generally very unstable. And if we look Mm -hmm. at something like pressure rate, that tends to be pretty sticky. And in fact, Ben's found that that is pretty flat year over year. So I was thinking, Suma, that we might see some regression to the mean when it comes to quarterbacks under pressure performing at more of a historical baseline versus the drop-off that we've seen this year. And also if we start to see fewer pressures resulting in sacks, again, a, a form of regression to the mean that could bring scoring up over the second half of the season, But based on what you said there at the end of your answer, it sounds as if maybe quarterbacks are struggling under pressure. Maybe they're getting sacked more often when pressured this season because defenses are playing them differently than they have in years past. So maybe I should pump the brakes on any optimism for scoring to go up over the second half of the season.
2: Yeah, I also think that it really helps a little bit more when quarterbacks are mobile and can scramble. We see it especially with guys like Justin Fields nowadays who – is a little bit more decisive in his um, actions and starts to, to scramble earlier early, early in the season he was taking way too many sacks um, and now he's scrambling more like when the field is clouded there are no um, open weeds or maybe he also sees man coverage then he will just take his legs and, and go and just imagine um getting the ball out of your hands before taking a sack an incompletion is more valuable than a sack, but scrambling is even more valuable than um, taking an an incompletion. So I think scrambling quarterbacks really have a counter move to that. And some of the, let's say, um, um, pocket quarterbacks like Tom Brady is having issues. Matt Ryan had tremendous issues. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I think when we put Everything together, it kind of makes sense.
1: Well, speaking of scrambling quarterbacks, let's talk Thursday night football. Marcus Mariota and the Atlanta Falcons taking on the Panthers in a rematch of a thrilling game just a couple weeks ago. We've seen some interesting movement on both the side and the total in this one. Atlanta opened up as a two point favorite, got up to minus three for a while, just as we were starting to record some buyback on Carolina. Now we're seeing the Falcons in the range of minus two and a half at even money. The total in this one has been steamed upward from an opener of 42.5 up to 44. Suma, what do you think over the course of the first few days in the Week 10 betting market has driven some Falcons money and a good bit of over money as well?
2: Because we had this exact matchup two weeks ago, I like to anchor towards that closing line from two weeks ago. I mean, usually it's very simple to look back at games and say, hey, four weeks ago, That was the closing line, what has happened, but the market is usually also learning over four weeks. But now we have a perfect example, like these two teams played two weeks ago, basically uh, 10 days between this, and the Falcons close, I think, minus four, minus 115 at Betquist. And now we are seeing a, you said it, a soft three shaded towards the, the dependence at home. So that's probably about a 6 to 8% win probability adjustment, which seems very irrational when you flip home field advantage. But I would also make the point that the Panthers averaged 0.2 EPA per rush in the first matchup, and they needed some crazy miracle throws at the end by PJ Walker to somehow stay in this game. So I think that people who put more emphasis on the closing line will say that three was probably or maybe a, a little bit too much. But on the other side, I think people can also make a rational case, or at least the people that that bet the uh, that bet the Falcons up earlier in the week will probably say that PG Walker probably came back down to earth. The the Pandas have some injury issues. See um, um Colorado Patterson is back for the Falcons. They might run well. Um, on the Panthers, so i think that that's probably probably be the back and forth and yeah right now it's shaded towards two and a half we, we will see where the market goes right now it's looking like we might bounce between the two and a half and the three until the kickoff on thursday
1: and when it comes to the total in this one you mentioned for the side anchoring a bit to the closer we saw just a couple of weeks ago because same two teams this happened fairly recently when these teams met in Atlanta. The total closed 41, so that's a good bit south of where it sits now in the range of 44, but that matchup did go way over. We saw 71 points total in a 37-34 Falcons victory. Of course, that game went to overtime, but we still saw 68 points in regulation. So do you think we're essentially seeing a three-point bump on the total just because of the margin in which that first matchup went over?
2: The, the market actually came back a little bit, um, looking at 43 at circa. So some of these 44s got played back. Mm. And here, yeah, I mean, it's still two teams that are not especially famous for, for being over teams. Like the Panthers usually played a little bit more low scoring games. I mean, they had that 60 point plus game um, on the road at the Bengals. But the Falcons are, are not the same team like the Bengals. They want to run the, bo- run the ball a lot. Um, and we also see it against the Chargers, which close, I think, in the ballpark of 48-ish. And in the end, we are looking at 30, 37 points because the Falcons, with their intense run game, they don't really care what's on the scoreboard. They just want to run the ball. And if you do that, or if, if that's your strategy, you have to be very efficient when throwing the ball to score more points or to score points above expectation. So, I think with this current setup, with the, with the Falcons offense and the Panthers offense, that's probably not a classic over team. Uh, I think it's in hindsight, it's probably logical that some batters took the under at 44 at the key number and brought it back down closer to where this game closed uh, two weeks ago.
1: No shortage of insight on the Thursday nighter to kick off Week 10. And Suma, I think you'll have plenty to say about this next game as well. It's taking place in your neck of the woods in Munich this weekend, Seattle meeting Tampa Bay. And we've seen some intriguing movement on the side in this one. Suma, first and foremost, just wanted to get your read from being on the ground in Germany. What do you sense of the locals' appetite for the NFL's first game there in quite some time?
2: It's crazy. Uh, good, Good morning football is... This... Uh, streaming from munich since monday morning so the whole studio is there um lots of stuff ha- happening in munich we tried to get tickets and there were like 500 plus ticket requests for this game in germany and we had no shot at getting anything uh, the appetite is immensely high um there has been a football boom in Germany starting at around 2013, 2014, which were the years where the Legion of Boom was dominating all of NFL. So the Seahawks are the, I would call it the the most popular franchise in Germany. So Mm -hmm. if you ask, let's say 10,000 Germans, what's their favorite franchise is, the biggest uh, piece of the pie would be the Seahawks. So. Very popular game here once the schedule came out. Um, yeah, I cannot wait to watch that game. I Can, cannot wait to see what's happening around that stadium on Sunday. I think the atmosphere will be very, very good.
1: Love it. And I will quickly correct myself from a moment ago. I think I said it's been quite some time since the last NFL game in Germany. This will be the first NFL regular season game in Germany. So we're going to see some history here. And I love that tidbit from you about the Seahawks being the most popular team locally, because I think that a lot of these games we see when the Jags go to London. Yes, it's a neutral site game, but not all neutral site games are truly neutral when it comes to home field advantage. And based on what you just shared, something I haven't heard anywhere else yet, maybe a subtle very slight bit of home field advantage favoring Seattle in this one. Although I'm sure there will be plenty of Tom Brady fans backing the bucks as well, getting the chance to see the greatest of all time at Alliance stadium in Munich and sumo let's talk the side in this one, because we saw Tampa open minus one, bounce down to pick them. Now we're looking at minus three even money or minus two and a half, minus one twenty. But if we zoom out a bit, the preseason look ahead in this one, a wholly different number, Tampa Bay minus nine and a half. So Suma, when it comes to this matchup, how much weight do you put on priors and how much weight do you put on what we've seen from these teams over the course of the first half of the season?
2: So when the schedule came out, I think it was in early May. Correct me if I'm wrong. And we looked at this game and said, oh, man, that's going to be a lopsided affair. Tom Brady against the Seahawks. I mean, in the preseason, the Seahawks were probably power-rated in the, in the bottom five or around that ballpark by, by literally everyone. So everyone thought that, okay, that's going to be a minus 10 kind of spread, very lopsided. It's all about halftime, not the greatest game to put uh, to put on the schedule for the first game in Germany. But I mean, now we are looking at two teams that are, I would say, very close together in terms of how the season played out. If we just take away all our priors on the Bucks and on Tom Brady, I think you cannot make a very good case for why the Bucks should still be the significantly better team. And that's very interesting. I mean, usually when we see such a discrepancy between preseason look-ahead line and then the game that only in week nine, it's usually because of some major injuries like at quarterback or something. But there are no injuries. It's just that the Seahawks are playing incredibly well and incredibly above expectation on both sides of the ball.
1: Yeah. And I think that something we've seen coming in below expectations for Tampa Bay would be the way that Byron Leftwich is running the offense and you've not minced words about it in your weekly column this week. I think you had an interesting angle explaining how a two to one early down pass to run ratio and the bucks went over the Rams this past Sunday, maybe not quite what it seems. So I wanted to use that angle to put the ball back in your court when it comes to this Tampa offense, uh, you know, maybe they didn't figure something out even though they won against the Rams at the last minute to possibly save their season
2: yeah so um, when we take out the last drive before halftime and the two last drives in, late in the fourth quarter when the Bucks had no other choice than passing the ball it was still a 47% early down rush rate and they average, I think minus 0.39 EPA per rush which is horrendous Like none of their 20 early down runs in the game went for a new first down. Their success rate was close to 10%. So, in comparison, even the worst rushing attack across 17 games or 18 games in an NFL season would not come close to that disaster of an, of an average in terms of efficiency. So, I think it's a pretty interesting case to watch how the Bucks offense might do something differently. I don't expect them to because Baron Lefurge is on record and he repeatedly said that they gotta run the ball to set up play action. They just gotta run the ball better. He needs to do a better job at at calling those run plays. They love Leonard Fournette, so I think if you can guarantee someone that. They will come out with a 60-70% early down pass rate and just try to get out the ball quickly to Mike Evans and Chris Godwin. There's certainly a much better case to be made for the Buccaneers laying close to a field goal. But if you're interested in the Seahawks, you might point towards that early down inefficiency and say, hey, the Seahawks are playing very good on both sides of the ball why should they be given, given a, giving a, a field goal spread or close to a field goal spread here? I mean, one point that's interesting is that Seattle went to Arizona, back to Seattle, then has a flight to Munich, which is not bad because the flight from Seattle to Munich is roughly the same than Tampa Bay to Munich because you are uh, flying over the North Pole. But it will be a 6, 7 a.m. body club game for the Seahawks. So I think that's something that might go into that number, but yeah, I've also heard an, an interesting back and forth on podcasts and shows this week. Some people are saying that the Seahawks should be even favored because they have been the, the, the better team. Some other people are cratering more towards their priors on the Bucks and Tom Brady, uh, which are saying, hey, they are clearly the, the better team and they should be laying two, two and a half, three points here. So yeah. I personally would be surprised if we saw a flat three at some point. I think there's too much resistance for the Seahawks at three. And I would probably rather lean towards a two and a half uh, than a three flat come come game time.
1: One of the more fascinating games on the whole week 10 card. And it's bright and early for not just the Seahawks body clocks, but yeah, 6.30 a.m. Pacific time kickoff. So I'll be watching it quite early Sunday morning as well. A lot to look forward to with a very intriguing matchup in Munich. And Jacob, as we move forward to the Sunday standard early window, a lot to look forward to as well, perhaps, for your Giants off their by hosting the Texans. And we've seen quite a wave of Houston money to start the week. Giants were minus seven. Now that spread is down to minus four and a half. Just how quickly are you going to rush to the betting window
0: to back your Giants after we wrap this show? Well... I was looking at it earlier in the week, and it's moved a lot because, like you said, it was around seven. I wasn't really liking the Giants at seven. I was kind of waiting for maybe one book to kind of go towards six and a half, and then I was probably still going to bet the Giants at six and a half. I just think much better than the Texans in this one. And I mean, I'm am a homer. I like betting on the Giants because <laughs> I'm a Giants fan. I'm not gonna, uh, I'm not gonna just gonna pretend I don't do that. But I I don't just blind. I wouldn't just blindly bet them. Like if there's A lot of times this season, they've been three point underdogs. I find a book that has them maybe minus 120 or better on the plus three and a half. If I see a bookmaker, or or, sorry, an odds maker like like Pinnacle, Bet Chris, or Circa who have minus 110 on the plus three, I get minus 120 to plus three and a half. That's what I've been looking to take, and they've just been winning those outright. So that's been more than fine. So four and a half on this one. Uh, I, I will be taking the Giants this week for sure.
1: And there's no shame in being a homer. I know that on this show, like many others, we try to find plus EV bets. But as a hat tip to Rufus Peabody, he's kind of coined the phrase recently, life EV. And if you get some good life EV out of backing your team, That can just make it a much more fun game to watch with an added rooting interest and even better when you compare that life EV with some betting EV, if that's how you see it now that this number is down to four and a half. And Suma, speaking of the betting value in this one, if there is any at the current number, wanted to see if you thought this surge on the Texans was related to the market having more optimism on anything the Texans can do well to give the Giants a competitive game or perhaps any market negativity on the Giants just simply not being a team built to win by margin despite their impressive record at 6-2 and two entering Week 10?
2: Yeah, there are several things. So this was, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, because my spankots is not working right now, but I think it was 7 on Monday night. Then we got the Xavier McKinney news that he had his hand broken uh, uh, on during his trip to Cabo during the bye week. Then the next morning I was staring at minus six and a half. Then there was more Texans money, bringing it down towards six-ish. And then we had the uh, release from our friend Adam Chernoff today, which brought the whole market down to minus four and a half. And I think Adam was also arguing that the Giants, despite all their success this this season, are are from his point of view, probably not built by margin. The Texans are getting some players back, like um, Molly Collins, I think, could be back. Nico Collins could be back. Um, Yeah, Brandon Cooks. I mean, Brandon Cooks, it sounded very weird today in the practice report because he was limited. And it didn't really sound like he would be close to fully practicing. So I don't know what's behind that because his Injury status the week before the Eagles game didn't sound like he was really out of practice because of his hand injury. And now today that after he's been back in the facility, he is dealing with an injury and it's only limited. So that's something to monitor in this one. But yeah, um, other than that, I think if you play the Texans at six, six and a half, uh, seven, you're probably saying that there should be a touchdown gap between the two and that the Giants are not the team to to covered by margin, I wonder what the floor eventually is going to be, um, whether it's going to be or whether we might see some fours on the Giants. I think those would be, get bet up quickly. So um, there is some strong support with the China release at six, six and a half, but I also don't think that the floor is going to be like in the fours. I think there will be a back and forth at four and a half, five, five and a half, kind of the dead zone
1: here. Speaking of teams not necessarily equipped to win by margin, but that are favored this week, the Chicago Bears, the next game we can touch on hosting the Detroit Lions. And Chicago has been steamed upward after opening as a short favorite at minus two, currently seeing some Bears minus three at even money out there. Suma, what do you make of some of the buy signs we're seeing across the betting market, perhaps for Justin Fields and a burgeoning Chicago offense? Uh,
2: this is a very... Interesting discussion, in my opinion, because the Bears have been so bad and have been so crazily underdogs for for much of the season. Uh, So many people always have liked the Lions. (laughs) I mean, the Lions closed three and a half against Miami. They closed three and a half against the Packers. And now they are almost three-point dogs um, on the road at at Chicago, which is pretty, pretty interesting, in, in my opinion. I mean, there is a decent case to be made about the Bears that their offense has been playing exceptionally well. They ranked like top 10 in WA over the past th- three weeks. They played really well against the Dolphins recently and sh- could have won that game. But on the other side, some bettors who took the three, and we had some early releases on the Bears at minus two and a half. But there was some strong resistance on Detroit at at three, which didn't allow this this number to get towards three. Um, When I saw those releases on Chicago early Monday morning, I thought, okay, this is going to get to three, because low limits, there is some strong support for the Bears. So this might very well be three by Monday night. But it hasn't been there, um, because there was some strong support on the Lions. So we have this game. The Bears are suddenly uh, being favorites. The, the Detroit Lions, who have had some support, are, are currently plus three in the, in the division on the road. There's going to be some cold weather. Jet Goff in cold weather has never been that very well. Um, yeah, pretty, pretty interesting market angles on both sides of the ball. I'm very curious to see where this um, ultimately closes. With the strong support on the Detroit Lions at three right now, I would be surprised if it gets towards a flat three sooner. We, we won't know what the, what the weekend brings, but unless there are some crazy injury uh, news um, which, which are negative for the Lions, I would be surprised if we, if we saw a flat three for Chicago by, by Friday.
1: You touched on a lot of different factors in that one. Quite a simple handicap. And the next thing we're going to touch on Minnesota at Buffalo side and total have been all over the place this week, pretty much because we're all waiting for official word on Josh Allen's status. Buffalo opened minus nine. That's down to three and a half total has crashed down from 48 and a half to 43 and a half sumo. What's your read on the status of Josh Allen in this one? It sounds at this point, like we're basically just awaiting the formal word that he's going to be out on Sunday.
2: Yeah, I think it's trending towards that. Um, my best guess as of right now is that he will not play. Um, if, if you combine all the information about that injury that is out there, it's more and more likely that this is a two to three week absence, probably. And with him not practicing today, with the, with his coaching staff uh, talking up Case Keenum, I think even if Josh Allen could somehow play this game, it probably makes a lot of sense to just rest his elbow and not make things um, any more worse. So, yeah, Circa had this game open all the time at 10K limits. Uh, market uh, price discovery um, has shown us that there is some strong support for the Vikings. I think there's also a lot of bettors that just took any number on the Vikings to just get any middling opportunity later in the week if he's indeed ruled out. Um, I think this number with Case Keenan will probably be Buffalo minus 2.5. But if all those people who got some Vikings earlier this week want to middle this, there might also be some support um, on the Bills at minus 2.5, pushing this maybe towards 3. So if this gets pushed towards 3, there might be some shares of just people trying to middle instead of people really putting a position on the bills um, at minus two and a half.
1: And when it comes to the notion of middling or in some cases hedging, I tend to think that if it's life-changing money or if it's a plus EV bet in a vacuum, then by all means, knock yourself out. Otherwise proceed with caution. Sometimes it's just playing back a minus EV proposition on something that you've already banked some pretty good equity in. So if we see this one trickle down through the three to minus two and a half, do you think that there are any people on the sidelines waiting to back Buffalo who didn't take any numbers on Minnesota, but who just think even with Case Keenum, if the Bills are laying less than a field goal, then that standalone purposes needs to be a bet for the week 10 portfolio.
2: Yes, absolutely. I mean, the Vikings are still a fascinating case in the marketplace because some people think that they are not that elite team. There is a 7-1 or 8-1. Right now, uh, because there were some inconsistencies on offense. Their defense has not been playing on a top 10 level. So I think some betters were probably waiting for an opportunity to fade the Vikings. Um, the Bills are at home. They might get some players back on defense. Matt Milano, Trudevius White might be back. John Poya is day-to-day. They still have their offense together. So I think at minus two and a half, there might also be some support for the bills um, just because they're laying less than a touchdown on against a dome team on the road uh, that has not basically um, played up to their um, record in terms of efficiency numbers
1: one more game before we move on to the late window we can touch on this one really quickly but in real time we have seen some denver money hit the marketplace tennessee has come off of the three down to minus two and a half across the board Has there been any news as we've been recording Suma on the status of Ryan Tannehill or any initial thought as to what might have taken Tennessee hosting Denver down off the three to Titans minus two and a half?
2: I have not seen anything. It's interesting that I think circa went down to a 36 and a half on the total, Mm -hmm. which might indicate that the market is leaning towards another week of Malik Willis. Um, I don't think that we had a final word on on the details of his injury, whether it was a high or, a, uh, or a, another grade two ankle sprain. If it was a high ankle sprain, that's usually a four-week absence for quarterbacks. We saw it with Mac Jones earlier this season, and this week would be week three. So if it's a high ankle sprain, I would probably lean towards Malik Willis playing. Um, I don't know whether Ryan Tindell was practicing today. I don't know whether the injury report is already out. But yeah, um, if it's a high ankle sprain, it, it's, it's tending towards uh, Malik Willis.
1: All right, that would explain the move we've seen there. A couple games to go. The market has just been bonkers today and and for much of the early week. Let's touch on a couple games in that late window Sunday. First off, the Colts at the Raiders. We saw Las Vegas open laying six. That bumped up to six and a half. Now it's come back down to the six. So a little bit of ping-ponging on and off of that six. In a vacuum, I feel like I'd be inclined to look toward the Raiders laying less than a touchdown. But this has been a really tough one to figure out thinking that the psyche looms large for both of these teams, but on both sides, it's really tough to gauge where these teams sit. So Suma, I wanted to see which organization you thought might be in more turmoil here, considering the Colts kind of perplexing head coaching move. Jeff Saturday will be patrolling their sidelines. He has designated a play caller who previously was the assistant quarterbacks coach with no play calling experience. And he'll be dialing up plays for Sam Ellinger under center for Indy. So A lot of reason to see where things could go sideways on the Colts. And at the same time, the Raiders, now three games they've lost in which they've blown 17-plus point leads. I feel like on paper, there's a lot of optimism to back them against the Colts from a personnel standpoint, but can't help but wonder if that locker room might be starting to let go of the rope under Josh McDaniels.
2: Um, I saw a tweet the other day that uh, someone said that Josh McDaniels to Jeff Saturday might not be that big of a gap after all. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm completely honest. If you can give me any good reasoning or any good explanation of how to prize Jeff Saturday in his first ever head coaching uh, game and um, the 30-year-old offensive coordinator that has never called plays, I will happily take it. I have no clue. I will completely stay away from this game. There has been some cold support at six and a half and almost six so someone might probably just, uh, simply bet the number there and fading the the uh, las vegas Raiders. but i have just no clue what to expect um, i have no clue what the locker room will look like um maybe jeff saturday is, is one of those former players that can motivate all those guys this week But i have just no clue what to expect from a game planning perspective just zero clue what what to make um, of this game.
1: And as you talk about how tough it is to piece together what we could possibly expect with any degree of confidence, I'm reminded of the late, great David Malinsky. Seemed like when he had his point-blank column going twice a year when the Jags and Titans would meet up and they were just both bottom-of-the-barrel teams. It would often be a case where he'd say, when there's so much variance and we're dealing with so many negatives for both sides, laying minus 110 might as well be laying minus 115 just attaching extra VIG, so to speak, because of all the uncertainty, usually pointing in the negative direction. So totally understand Colts Raiders being a stay away for you. And I'd be curious for your thoughts also in the late window Sunday on Cardinals Rams. We have seen this move come down from as high as Arizona plus four. Uh, Now, again, as we've been recording another power move on Arizona, I'm seeing circa down to minus one and a half for the Rams. Some pick them across the board. Um, Do you see that we're getting a more of a pro Cardinal sentiment here or a bigger anti Rams sentiment across the betting market.
2: There was just some news 10 minutes ago that Matthew Stafford has entered the concussion protocol. Hmm. And that's uh, originating uh, that move um, on the Cardinals. Um, concussion protocol entering on Tuesday doesn't really seem to be too optimistic about his availability on Sunday. I would argue Mm -hmm. Um, because in recent weeks, when someone got into the concussion protocol, it really takes something to get out of it. Come, come, come the weekend. And if he's entered the concussion protocol today, because there were some late symptoms, it might be too short of a turnaround to get ready for Sunday. But I'm not a doctor. I, I, I've just seen the, the tweets. But I can just say that uh, this was originating that move down to uh, one and a half, and we will see what happens with Matthew Stafford on that um, front.
1: Fair enough. Not a doctor, but quite the better and quite the betting market reader. Suma. one more segment from a betting standpoint in this show. Fabian's forecast. I know when we talked beforehand, you mentioned this being a tough week to try to come up with something that we haven't already discussed because we've covered so much of the board with all the market movement that's already taken place. I wanted to throw one thing your way. Uh, in terms of possibly Matt's forecast, pinch hitting for this week, and then a question for you that can more fulfill the moniker Fabian's forecast. As far as one game I'm eyeing that we haven't touched on yet, the Steelers hosting the Saints. Currently, that one is minus two and a half in favor of New Orleans across the board if and when we get word officially that TJ Watt is going to play, he's one of the few defensive players in this league who I think is a difference maker when it comes to the point spread. Don't necessarily think the favorite's going to flip or anything like that, but for teaser betters out there, those with the intestinal fortitude to still bet teasers after what they've thrown the, you know, thrown of us all for a loop over the season's first nine weeks. uh, This one could get interesting in terms of teaser implications because right now the Steelers can be taken up through eight up to plus eight and a half and I don't think that's going to be the case if and when TJ Watt is ruled in. So given that eight, a bit more of a key number this season than we've seen in years past, if somebody's going to tease Pittsburgh sooner rather than later is probably the time to do it. This number probably going to tick a bit closer to pick And then Fabian, for something that I'd like to get your insight into, maybe pulling up the crystal ball for some AFC futures, you touched on Josh Allen probably missing this week, and if he does, this also could quite possibly be a multi-week absence the bills had taken the driver's seat for the number one seat in the afc when they beat the chiefs at arrowhead a few weeks back now that seems to be up in the air given all the uncertainty around josh allen is there anything you're looking to do in the afc futures market since now there's a, a bit of a dark cloud hovering over the bills prospects relative to where they were you know just prior to kickoff sunday against the jets
2: yeah, I think if you're done with the Bills going forward, like every other team in the AFC gets a a little bump, I would say. The Ravens are interesting because the Ravens play a laughable schedule going forward. Um, and Mark Andrews will be back at some point. Their defense um, is playing a little bit better. Their pass rushers are coming back. Like there's even a, a point a there's even a data at some point where their rookie pass I forgot his name, will uh, will be back. Marcus Williams will be back in December. So we are looking at a Ravens team that is already pretty good, playing a very laughable schedule down the road, and might also get some key players back uh, in late November, December, or something. So the Ravens could be something to look at. And specifically, when we're talking about the Bills, I mean, if that's the case that Josh Allen will miss some time. Miami's in the driver's seat in this division. Like Their offense is so good. I'm concerned about their defense. I think there are some real legit concerns because their pass defense is not looking great. But their offense is so good right now. And I wonder how quickly opposing defenses can find some counter moves towards Jalen Waddle and Tyreek Hill.
1: No shortage of good food for thought for week 10 in the NFL and even some futures over this last minute or so. As we start to round the corner and wrap up the show, also wanted to weave in the hops, thinking back to our best drinking experiences over the course of the past week. Jacob, we'll lead off with you as always. How was that Belgian drinking experience
0: you mentioned on last Friday's Props and Hops? I have bad news. Unfortunately, my plans for that day fell through, so I wasn't able to go out nice. and enjoy all those. So that was really unfortunate. Instead, I went to a local place. Um, I actually don't know if this is Belgian, but I had uh, my, my drink of choice tonight was Belgian Moon. Uh, I think it's changed now to Blue Moon. I think in the States, probably more commonly referred to as Blue Moon. In Canada, I would say more commonly Belgian Moon, but that was my drink of choice. Um, that's a pretty easy one. Really good with a nice orange slice garnish to go with it. I actually, it's called Belgian Moon. I actually have no idea if it's a Belgian beer or anything like that. But it it was tasty. It pales in comparison to my hopes for that night. But still enjoyable experience. I went with my girlfriend. We watched uh, Game 6 of the World Series, plus the Maple Leafs were playing the Bruins that night. So a good experience overall with some good food as well. And I think that...
1: Blue Moon, as it's known, stateside. Belgian Moon, as you referred to it, is inspired by the Belgian wit style. So I can see the ties there. Uh, Yeah, maybe not quite what you had been hoping for when we recorded last Friday, but still sounds like more than enough to hit the spot. So glad that you had a good plan B in store. I'll say that also on our show last Friday, I had teased a West Coast IPA I was going to be having at Green Cheek in Sunset Beach while watching Tennessee, Georgia. And that came to fruition, fortunately. West Coast IPA is dead by Green Cheek. Paired with their breakfast burrito was an epic combo, as I'd hoped. Having a Tennessee-Georgia view on one side, an ocean view on the other side wasn't so bad either. And then just kept the West Coast IPA and college football theme going throughout the day for Alabama LSU. Went to the side yard with my wife, lit up our fire pit, and threw back a can of Hello LA, which is a West Coast IPA by Highland Park Brewery out here. That one features mosaic and citra hops uh, just about as good as it gets watching some blue chip college football programs all day with some blue chip caliber west coast ipas i love a good hazy ipa love a good sour or stout a lot of the really en vogue styles right now but sometimes just going back to the roots especially out here on the west coast you know that that west coast ipa uh, some breweries can do no wrong so it was great just to get back to that and Zuma, speaking of having some good roots in the beer world, uh, no shortage of options on your end. What was your best drinking experience over the last week?
2: Uh, to be honest, uh, it was a very rare weekend where I only drank two beers. I, <laughs> I tried to be sober, uh, it didn't work out perfectly well, but I had a, um, a Koenig Ludwig uh beer, Weizenbier, right beer from Bavaria. Uh, Very good. I don't know whether you guys have that over there um, in some of the uh, beer stores or grocery stores. Uh, If you ever see it, you should uh, uh, absolutely try it. Um, It's been one of the better uh, whites and beers that I've I've drank in my life.
1: Hmm. I'm trying to do some real-time research to see if it's available in my neck of the woods. I'm not sure that it is, but I'll keep an eye out for it. That sounds pretty good. But bigger picture, I want to commend the moderation. It's fun to, you know, enjoy beer and talk about it weekly, but all good things in moderation. Sometimes, you know, taking a break, if you'd had zero beers over the past weekend would still, you know, think probably even more highly of you to be honest. So uh, well played on that front Uh, might be a different story. Trying to get through a week of the NFL season without any bets in the portfolio. Uh, I know that you attack the betting markets about as well as anybody And if anybody wants to follow you on Twitter who isn't doing so already, they can do so at SUMA810. That's S U U M A 810. You can follow me on Twitter at M Landis18. That's M L A N D E S 1 8. Want to thank everybody for tuning in. Jacob and I will be back with you on Friday alongside Hitman for our week 10 prop betting breakdown. Thanks for tuning in today, and we'll catch you again for props on Friday.